invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. And, um, but let's, let's go to the author before we read the word. Father, we do come to you. We thank you that we are able to approach you, uh, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of sinners. So we're grateful for the truths that we've been able to sing, reminding us of your great gospel call to us, of an amazing grace and a mercy and a, a love that are deep and vast. And these songs are inspirational, uh, certainly. They move us. They enable us to aspire to higher levels of holiness and of life. But we come now to your word, which is truly inspired, uh, breathed by your Holy Spirit. And by virtue of that inspiration, it far exceeds the words of the others. It is authoritative, it is indeed living and active and powerful, it is, it is without error, it is without fail. And Lord, now as we read from the Gospel of John, uh, may your Spirit work and move among us to hear what we should hear and to open the eyes of faith to see him. Amen. Well, we're doing a little series this summer through the Gospel of John, John uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16. And uh, they're, they're chapters uh, that, that depict the, the last teaching of Jesus with his disciples before the cross and, of course, then his resurrection and ascension. We come this morning to uh, verse 15 of chapter 14. I'll begin reading there, and we'll read through actually the end of the chapter today. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much, but for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. A bit of an abrupt ending, in a a sense, and you notice the next chapter, the next verse continues without really any break, just continues red letter. Uh, If you have that kind of addition, Jesus continues his teaching and talking. But this this is about uh, love. When working with a a Christian couple, uh, and perhaps they're struggling with communication or some other element of relationship, um, very often at some point along the conversation or or the sessions that would follow, I'll ask, how are you praying? In what way are you praying? what's What's the content of your prayer? How are you communing with Jesus? And my anecdotal experience is if you're struggling to communicate and relate in an intimate way with the God who made you and redeemed you, you can pretty well bet you're going to have difficulty communicating in any other kind of relationship and intimacy somewhere along the way. Now, some are gifted communicators and skilled and can get by for quite a while, but it will come to something. It'll rear its head. And that's a question for us. And we came off of this section, which is a grand, uh, open-ended kind of request in verse 14, uh, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It is broad in its prayerful expectation. Now, there are are several if statements, however, in in the course of the chapter. And uh, we do well to observe these, but let's just notice a couple of them. First one in verse 7. It says, If you had known me, you'd known my Father. And then it also says in verse 15, which which we've read, if you love me. And and it is in between that that, uh, assumed relationship, that love relationship, you you know him, you love him, that this other if, if you ask anything in my name, to know Christ, to love Christ, to bear his name, Uh, That is the parameter of asking and of receiving in this relationship. Prayerful petitioning is couched within the dimension of a love relationship with Jesus. And while we might be overwhelmed, surprised by the, the wide reach of a prayer life, really even more awe inspiring is the wide reach of a love life with Christ. 
Now, you can do a quick um, search uh, on love or a definition of love. Just type it in and hit enter and up pops up some really quick and immediate definitions and they'll go something like this. Um, an intense feeling of deep affection and a great interest and pleasure in something. Affections, pleasure, interest. And those are very true. Uh, they, 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 but they are self-directed, aren't they? It's pleasure, it's affections, feelings, and those are great, they're good. Indeed, that's, that's part of it. They may fade, they may ebb and flow, they may, they may increase or decrease, but there's, there's certainly parts of it, and those are normally the elements that we observe. That's how we define, that's how we would manifest love, by that self-expression internally. But we learn in another place that the fruit of the Holy Spirit begins with love. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Well, how do we know this love relationship with Christ? And how do we properly manifest the affections that we have for Him and He toward us? This chapter uh, circles around a little bit. Jesus brings a teaching Judas interjects and says, yeah, but, and then Jesus kind of repeats a little bit of what he already taught and then expands on it a little bit further. So it, it cycles around, a bit of repetition within the chapter. It makes it really difficult to outline, really difficult to flow through. But let me identify a few of these things that manifest love. A little bit different than that definition we just hit enter. First of all, love keeps the word of God. Love keeps the word of God. Love by nature, love by nature um, gives more than it takes. God is love, and God gives. And we know that really from our most popular verse, right? John 3:16. God loved in such a way, how? It's not, it's not how much. But it's how did he, how, in what way did he love? He loved by giving. He loved by sending his son. It's built into the character and the nature of God, God who is love, to give and to send. It's repeated similarly in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, we love because he first loved us and we love in the same fashion by giving more than by taking. Now, indeed, love is reciprocal, to be sure. Uh, but it's more about receiving than about taking in that reciprocity. We're in it to give. We're in it to serve the other. And yes, in in a relationship, if both are in it to serve the other, then obviously there will be a receiving on the other end as well. But it is a receiving and not a taking. Well, this, this aspect of, of love um, is manifest, and there is a reciprocity 
a reciprocal relationship. Notice these six statements in the chapter. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Verse 26, now speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. There's an emphasis on the teaching of Jesus Christ, the words of Christ. And later he'll say, they're not my words only. Verse 24, they're the Father's who sent me. This is the message of God in the voice of Christ. The verb tense uh, in verse 15 is really important. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, moms and dads use the will in an imperatival sense many times. If you have breakfast, you will get up. You know, there's a condition there that you must get up in order to get breakfast, and reasonably so, might I say. That's not what's going on here in verse 15. If you love me, then future tense, not imperative, not a command. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Future tense. It's the natural outcome of love is to obey. Amazing, isn't it? When the condition of love is genuine, the result will be an obedience to keeping the word of Christ. The motive for obedience is not to get something from God for ourselves but to give Christ pleasure, to give him honor from a grateful heart. That's love. Another attribute of love, another manifestation of love, of our affection for Christ, is that love receives, there it is, love receives the abiding presence of God. Love makes its home within your heart. He, he promised this earlier in the chapter, verse four, uh, chapter 14 and verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go and prepare a place for you. The dwelling place of God will be with you. And now, here it is. Love makes its home within your heart. God makes His home within you, the home prepared by Jesus. And the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of holiness is, is the abiding presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 16. I'll ask the Father and He'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 17 goes on to explain it's the spirit of truth and it, and it ends with you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's intimacy. Verse 20. 
I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So, whoa. Not only the Spirit indwelling, but the Father indwelling the Son, indwelling you. Spirit, Father, Son. Verse 23. My Father will love, and we will come to him and make our home with him the dwelling presence of God. It is the Holy Spirit that Christ would send, having ascended to heaven, victorious over the grave, raised and, and ascended on high at the right hand of the Father, and from there the Father and the Son send their gift of the Spirit to the church. And to all who would believe on Christ, who are in Christ, then this divine residence is a reality. The blessed triune residence of God within you. That is a close relationship. Really close. Love receives this gift of God. Now, it, a few little tidbits. Jesus says, I'll send you another helper. Well, what was the first one? Well, it's him. John would explain that to us in his first little letter, his little epistle. We call it 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, my children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, helper, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is our first helper, our first advocate, our first comforter, our first counselor our first friend. All these are words used by different translations to describe this word, to in translate this word, interpret this word. The word of the New Testament is paraclete, parakletos. It's a fascinating term. So the Holy Spirit comes as another parakletos, another one to come alongside you. That's what it is. To, two words come together. You, get, you might hear the word para in it, like parallel bars or parallelogram, to come alongside. And kletos is the word call. To call someone alongside, to call for aid, to call your friend, your colleague, to call for a judge adjutant, to call for an attorney to come alongside and defend your cause, defend your case. These are ways that this term is used. It's also used, apparently, one writer says, of the Greek system of warfare. You've heard these things about uh, Roman armor in particular, that there's no, not much covering on the back. So they didn't turn their backs on the enemies, but when you're engaged in close hand-to-hand -hand combat, it's a little hard to cover your back. So they would apparently pair up, and you would have a paraclete, you would work in tandem with your paraclete and be able to take steps forward and backward and strive and swing your sword or weapon of choice back to back. You've got one another's back, the paraclete. And we have not just one. We at least have the Son of God and the Spirit of God as paracletes. A paracletes. Oh, forget that one our helper, our confidant, our comrade, 
our counsel, to come alongside. Love receives this assistance. Love receives this aid and help. Next, love rests and rejoices in Christ. Verses 27 and 28, finally, uh, a little bit of a unit that hangs together here. Peace I leave with you, he says in verse 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. Jesus uh, is going to lead his disciples right into the fray. Uh, at the end of verse 31, he says, rise, let us go from here. And he is going to head into the Garden of Gethsemane eventually, where he would be betrayed. So he offers them peace. His peace is not the absence of turmoil, the absence of, of difficult conditions. It's not the absence of conditions that would intimidate you but rather peace is knowing you have the parakletos with you and the composure, the rest that you have because you are reinforced by God himself. But he says it's, it's a peace not like the world gives. We, we may resonate a little bit with those Christmas hymns, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men. Where is peace on earth, I say? Maybe one of the most significant uh, eras of peace outside of modern historical experience would be the Peace of Rome. It's called the Pax Romana. David's laughing at me, and he knows what's coming, I think. The peace of Rome, well, began with Augustus Caesar, and um, he conquered. I've been doing a little Bible study with some guys in the book of Daniel, and we've gotten to chapter 7 and 8, and, and Greece is portrayed as this goat that rams Assyria and tromps him to death and pulverizes him to dust, and he goes north and south and east and west, Greece conquers now, Caesar Augustus um, is in the line of that, now the Roman Empire, following the Greek Empire. And Augustus returns to Rome after conquering Western Europe. And, and he builds an altar to peace. Called the, it's still there, apparently, the Ari Passus. And you know where he put it? He put it in the field of Mars. No, not way up there. Mars is a god of war. And he places the altar of peace right in the midst of war. So Tacitus, the Roman historian, quotes a Scottish barbarian who maybe is not as barbaric as Rome. The Scottish chieftain says they make a desolation and call it peace. 
That's the peace that the world offers in general. A false peace or subservience. George Beasley Murley uh, comments that this altar is a monument to the skill of its sculptors and to the empty messianic pretensions of emperors. We can see that and identify with those things even yet today. But the peace of Christ is not that. Oh, yes, he has conquered. Yes, he is victorious. He's raised from the dead and ascended at the right hand of the Father, and he is victorious over the grave. And he's victorious over the devil, who is a murderer from the beginning. He is victorious. We don't need to wait for the victory. He is victorious, and he is reigning at the Father's right hand. Now, we long for his return when he will indeed consummate the kingdom and bring a rule of righteousness here on this planet Earth. Yes. And restore all things to their newness. Yes. But even now, we are given the promise of the peace of God. The peace that surpasses all understanding. As we guard our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus, we will have this peace. This peace of Christ removes the believer from the wrath of God and the curse of God. We sung this. Our songs are prayers. And we praised God in those prayers for removing the curse of sin and making peace with him through the blood of Christ. It reconciles the believer to the Father. Not only forgiven, not only sins removed and wrath removed, but reconciled. The relationship restored, mended. And, as we learned here, the residence of Christ, the residence of the Spirit, the residence of the Father in you, indwelling. The peace of Christ removes the believer from the wrath and curse of God, reconciles the believer with the Father, resides within the believer, and gives the believer this rest, this repose in the midst of conflict. That is love. Finally, verse 29. Love believes. Now, I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you might believe. I'll talk no longer much with you. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world would know that I love the Father. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Jesus has now instructed his disciples, and they are equipped with this instruction. He's told them what's going to happen. And they ought to be ready and equipped. He's telling them, in not so many words, that the prince of this world is going to be coming for him. And indeed will take his life. But Jesus says he has no claim on me. What will happen to me is not because Satan did it, or because Satan is in control, 
but I yielded to the will of the Father. I gave my life. Didn't we sing that? I gave, I gave my life for you. He gave his life. Nobody took it. He offered up his spirit on the cross. Satan had entered Judas just minutes before and took the bread from Christ and Christ says, go do what you need to do. And Judas leaves and John says, it was dark. Satan had entered Judas. And that possessed man is now making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus knows he needs to go. He will not be late. In fact, he will get there ahead of time to meet the Prince of Darkness. Christ laid his life to the Father. A verse that's here that can be misused and misunderstand, understood. The Father is greater than I. Right at the end of verse 28. That's a statement of role and function, not one of essence. The Son is returning to the Father. And in Hebrew, mind, worldview, thought, that means the Son is equal with the Father. And Jesus says, you ought to be rejoicing that now I am returning to the place of glory and majesty which I have set aside for this time period of ministry to you on the earth. And yes, during, during his first advent of his incarnation, he yielded to the, to the Father. He obeyed the Father. But now that he has ascended, he is back in glory. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Now, love believes the word of Christ. Love believes the work of Christ. Over and again, you may read of these leaps of faith or you may see Hollywood pictures of leaps of faith. Steps of faith. Live by your faith. It's wrong. The sentiment may be to be applauded, but it's wrong. We live by faith and not by sight. True. But we learned in Hebrews 11 that faith is the evidence of things not seen. The certainty of things hoped for. That means there is evidence. The things that cannot be seen can be seen in the evidences that are all around. 
The certainties of what we hope, which we cannot see at the moment, are evidenced all around, manifest all around in the love of God in Christ for you. Look upon Christ. See the love of God in Him and hear Him calling that call. Come home. Love believes the evidence. Sees the evidence. Hears the evidence. And no, I should re-say that. Love believes Christ. Sees the evidence. Hears the evidence. And believes Christ who's revealed the Father. Now, you, believer, you, believer, are in Christ. And Christ in you, and the Father in, the, in Christ, and the Spirit. Wow. I, I know that's not really probably the best descriptive word to use. Wow. But it is truly amazing, isn't it? Consider the union you have with Christ. And believer, yes, you may be driven by the Spirit into the wilderness as you keep in step with the Spirit, as you walk in the Spirit. And He may, he may drive you to the place where you will meet face to face with darkness. But know that while the world may beat you, berate you, buffet you, Christ abides in you. And the prince of darkness has no claim on you. None whatsoever. You belong to God through the precious blood of Jesus. Washed clean free for him. Now, Lord, thank you uh, for this revelation. We, we come needing to know a greater understanding of love and of who you are as love. God, may our, our desire to be to bring you pleasure and, and honor to keep your word. May indeed our, our openness and receptivity be union with the triune God. May we rest. May we rest in all that Christ has done and rejoice in him who calls us. Come, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, oh God, increase our faith. We believe. Help our unbelief. We ask this through Christ. Amen.